0: You are listening to UNS Talk, a podcast by the architecture and design firm UN Studio. For our second podcast, we invited Indy Johar to our Amsterdam office. Indy is a London-based architect who is involved with many different initiatives. He is a co-founder of Architecture Zero Zero and founder of Dark Matter Labs. He is also a senior innovation associate with the Young Foundation and visiting professor at the University of Sheffield. In his talk, Building the Politics of Change, Indy discusses architecture as an organism, craft, complex system typologies, architecture as a service, environmentalism and designing for innovation in a world of 18th century institutions.
1: So one of the things that always irritated me is as architects we we would say this is the brick we want, this is the mortar we want, this is effectively how it needs to be done, the bond is, we'll define everything. In the act of defining everything, we purposefully take, take the creative capacity of the person laying the bricks and centralise it to us. Right? So we are basically the forces of creative centralization. We centralise agency and purpose at the hands of the few because we design it and we control it. And that's because we have a fetish of control around what we want to imprint on the world. Now imagine another architecture, which is about unleashing the capacity of every trade to be creative and purposeful about their work. How would you organize architecture in that world? And I think it's just an interesting challenge. So are we concentrating our creative capacity because we want to empower and empower ourselves? At the same time, we've turned every every craft into labor. And the difference is craft is about the iteration of value and the iteration in context. Labour is the execution of things that are told what it's due, it could be effectively replaced. So what does architecture look like when it actually unleashes the humanity at the every, point in the, every point in the supply chain? I think these are the questions we have to ask ourselves, morally, but also in principle. What does it mean when we unleash the full capacity of everyone that builds a building? Not just the designers, not just the architect that draws the sketch, but every point in the chain if we want to talk about democracy we have to democratize the capacity to create not centralize it but democratize it so i kind of start this conversation by not showing buildings but actually some of the kind of questions that are really interesting to me and these questions are interesting because i think they for me they're about something about how we think about humanity so every human you'll ever meet is more powerful than any general artificial intelligence you will ever come across, or is likely to come across for the next 40 years. Fact. Undeniable fact. Any human you ever meet is more powerful than any general artificial intelligence you will meet for at least 40 years. And I I guarantee it will be longer than that as well. So, in that moment, are we genuinely unlocking the full capacity of every human we've ever met? Are we creating the organisation and cities and architecture which is focused on unlocking their capacity or are we actually focused on unlocking our own? I think these are sort of moral questions, but they're more than moral. They're actually about the societies we build and the way we build them. So for me, this is really the profound question. And I don't mean democratising in a kind of classic sense. I think there's lots of different models of democracy increasingly out there. The vote is one structure. I think it's about the inherent legitimacy of power and its real-time feedback with uh, with. with with everyone in society, members of society. So what, how do we start to think about that, I think is, is one of my personal profound questions. The first step for, for me is, well, if you imagine this conversation of architecture as an organism, how do you start to think about it? So our first experiment was this. This is uh, the Bristol Urban Beach, uh, where we basically partnered with Demos, and we built uh, an urban beach in 2006 and six and seven. We had 80,000 80, people turn up over four weeks, Um, I was uh, personally held, going to be held liable for any drop of sand that fell into that river over there, uh, a grain of sand that fell into that river. Um, The police basically threatened us to say, look, there's going to be violence, this is the middle of Bristol, you can imagine UK, alcohol being served, everyone's going, there is going to be chaos. And the police were like, this is going to be a disaster. So here's some really interesting lessons. One, actually, there was no chaos because we designed the environment. We didn't just design the physical environment, we curated the music, we created the conditions, we created the playfulness, we invited the right programming. By designing the programming, we had not one case, that was completely unheard of in bars, right? Not one case of police call out on that site at all. So we used the event and the programming to actually create the conditions. Secondly, you know, we were working with Bristol City Council, and so I said, we need a plan. It was like, we don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to be built with the community, so if we need a plan. It was like, and they said, just give us any plan. It doesn't really matter. Draw whatever you like. We're not. And so, what was fascinating was that planning process, which is driven through object orientation, couldn't handle the fact in an organic process of how do you build plans when actually something is an emergent act. And so, these were really interesting questions of how you how you were building this stuff. But this was the first time we built something, and we built it not just as a kind of third party doing it, we built it ourselves and we, um, we sort of you know, put the whole money together. And I think this is kind of interesting because this goes back to we, like, how we recruited the bars, the food, we created the supply chains for the deck, uh, the deck chairs were sold and where they were come from, where the cotton came from, the whole thing. So you think about the whole thing in that way. And 80,000 people, local people, but one of the most profound stories for me was like one woman said, look, I can't afford to take my child to the beach. Thank you so much. She actually just physically came up to Melissa, who's my co- um, co-partner in this, and said, thank you so much for doing this. And that was an extraordinary moment of just actually how space and but the curation of space could do this, you could do this environment. And for me, what that idea threw up is when we're designing, too often we're designing objects, when you start to design these institutions, how can you design? And what are you actually designing? Is it the, the quality of the building or is it the quality of the whole integrated experience? And too often we see designers segmented into objects and programming and other things. But when you design them together, it becomes fundamentally different. It, it, it transforms itself to being a completely different type of thing. We wrote the Compendium for the Civic Economy um, which you can download for free. It's a, uh, so it was kind of a, which really picked up projects like this was, uh, happening around the world. And we sort of put, put a lot of those projects together in that sense. And we also did work out in Harlem, uh, which was looking at, again, taking this kind of whole system supply chain approach to building. So here we were, there was a new building coming up. We were saying, look, what would we do? We were going to take the Reprographics apartment, the canteen, and bury it all into Harlem seed accelerate all those small businesses to actually then pull them back in later. So how could we use the whole arrival of a building to effectively democratise and create value back into Harlem and build, actually build the economic resources all the way through to the cultural resources. Now to me that was design. It was really fascinating to see how easy the client came along on the journey. So the client no longer so the client was like, yeah, this is great, this is the way we want to go. But it's really interesting to see what these sort of conversations look like, and that was not just about, that was as much about the physical construction as the supply chains. We were also behind the Somerset House. Uh, I think it's now the largest uh, incubator in Europe, actually, with over, I think, nearly 300,000 square feet now. And we, we built the strategy for that with the team around how it could be turned and converted from being an original uh, salt tax office um, and putting all of that stuff together. But again, it wasn't just about the building, it was about the institution mm. and the design of that institution. And also, Studio Weave at that time also did some of the kind of uh, fantastic animations inside that stuff. We were also um, fortunate enough uh, behind TEDx, uh, sort of Impact Hub Birmingham. And Impact Hub Birmingham, again, I'm giving you some examples of projects because if you look at how Impact Hub Birmingham was born, it was born by a TEDx which happened with 150 people turning up. And then 400 people turning up a few years later. And then effectively a Kickstarter where we raised £68,000. Amy Call and her team raised £68,000 crowdsourced from, from the community. Why? It wasn't about the money. It was about building legitimacy of that civic platform by citizens being involved in that process. And then it was also about co-designing and co-making the physical platform itself. And last year there was nearly 1,500 people turning up at TEDx into that story. So in these institutions, when you design them and you make them, they become something else. And I think the physical design is fundamentally integrated into the social process. You start to build certain different things. Just to say we do do architecture. Next part. So that's kind of something about what happens when architecture becomes an organism and you design that way. I think it fundamentally changes design and what we what we photograph. And I think that to me is fascinating. Second part of this conversation, and there's kind of seven, seven sequences, so let's keep going. How do you design in a complex world? And why I want to talk about this is, if we are, do recognise democratic agency, we also have to recognise this problem, which is that Actually, most of our solutions are climate change. So, for example, you want to deal with climate change, should I tell you the best thing? It's not about buildings or transportation. It's about going vegan, dude. Just go vegan. 50%. Significantly more impactful than construction, right? So why don't we talk about that? I find that interesting, right? And why are we focused on buildings? In the UK, we have a kind of equal, equal and opposite conversation going on around everything is about housing. We, we need more housing. And actually, the issue is not housing in the UK, flatly. It's nothing to do with housing. It's the unequal distribution of growth, where growth has been centred in, in London, and it actually has been, it hasn't been equally distributed. And that's to do with infrastructure investment around growth. So we often talk about the physical objects and physical transformations because we don't want to deal with the complex stuff. And increasingly, this is a real problem, right? So climate change we know we're basically frying ourselves pretty straightforwardly and simple yeah you know Michael Grove stands up in the UK government and says hey we're gonna ban plastic stores great thanks but you know the way this is going this is like terminal and we're banning plastic straws. I get it it's meaningful but not really not for a minister to say that so what's happening is we're focusing on tokenistic policy in a in a a means when actually the world is pretty significantly out of kilter so why is that and I think one of the reasons that is is this so this is a systems diagram of the drivers behind obesity It's done by the UK cabinet office now I think this diagram is really important for us because I think too often we think about problem solution from a linear lens we think this is a problem Ban sugar, you solve it. Well, actually, what you very quickly realize is there's multiple factors behind obesity or any social issue. How do you innovate in that context is not going to be about magic bullets. It's not going to be about our single solutions. But you need to innovate in that context. In a complex emergent world, we have to be able to innovate in this context. How do we do that, I think is one of the fundamental challenges for design and designing, I think is on the table. and this goes all the way through, this is looking at sort of, um, uh, sort of uh, children's needs in Camden, we did lots of work around that, we're doing some work in radical childcare with the team, but also it looks at, sort of this was work we did in Dubai, whereas if you wanted to move to Dubai and live there and say less than, uh, move to Dubai and open a bank account and everything else, and wanted to be able to do that in less than eight weeks, every one of those blue dots are different agencies. You'd have to innovate across pretty much every one of those blue dots. So the problem is not that the innovation is difficult, it's the fact that there are probably something in the region of about 50 odd eight, actors involved in every part of the chain, and you have going to have to influence and organise these different actors to behave differently. And that's not just a top-down problem, it's also about understanding innovation differently. So too often our innovation conversations are about services, individual projects, individual inter- interventions. How do you deal with interventions around, say, obesity? Well, so if you want to improve children's outcomes, education outcomes in an area. Schools, yeah, significant. Prenatal nutrition, more significant. Postnatal nutrition, more significant. Three-year-old reading reading ages, more significant. Uh, Breakfast clubs and actually nutrition of children going into school, more significant. After school clubs, social networks, more significant. Actually, there's a whole plethora, and that's not even getting into the house. and That's not even getting to micronutrients and pollutants in the house and level of air quality. So air quality indoors is one of the worst atrocious problems that we've got right now. Indoor air quality is atrocious. We don't even measure it, so you will often have uh, conversations about NOx or uh, nitrous oxide levels outdoor. Indoor is far worse, yet you spend 82% of your time indoors. And we know systematically it's affecting you. Like, and it has significant, like 30 to 40% effect on cognitive function. Significant cognitive factor um, function. So how do we start to think about this stuff, I think, requires us to be much more structured in actually o- operating at a systems level. Again, it's a piece of work that Yunji, uh, one of our colleagues, has been doing or what it did actually around mapping services. This is like all the services involved in people who are frail old, older people. So if you want to innovate, actually really innovate in a meaningful sense, you've got to be able to innovate across multiple, multiple challenges. Again, some recent work that Jack and Yunji and we were doing are in housing and care. So the problem is not just the housing product, but actually all the way from allocation policy, all the way through to other parts of the care system. So a HR. So here's here's the kind of thing, right? If you're employed to care, right? Your care contract and Bert Sogo is a Dutch uh, story, which is quite extraordinary. But in, until recently, even in 2007, you were given basically seven and a half minutes to do a pressure stocking. You were invited to do a piece of care transaction over seven and a half minutes, and so the whole economy of care was organised through managerialism. That basically means that you're not, you know, to care. You have to turn around and give a shit. You've got to turn around and give someone attention. What is it? What our contract, our HR economy, isn't inviting you to care. It's inviting you to transact. So when we start to think about it, we know that emotional intelligence and emotional capacity is going to be completely different and I would say one of the big transformations we're seeing is a shift from labor, physical transactional labor, to emotional labor. Most of what you do when you work here and you're here till 7.30, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock is you're here because you give a shit. Not because actually really, you know, about management, you give a shit and that's about you caring about something and that's because you care. Our economy is not geared to invite or look after the fact that you care. Your HR contracts are not designed to look after the fact that you care. Because they're invited to look after the fact how many hours we do. So how do we start to think about this world? I think these sort of questions, they're small precise issues. But at the centre of them they unlock actually different ways of seeing the world. Again, here's uh, a piece of work that we were doing around food systems. Uh, in Dubai, one of the kind of interesting questions there was, you know, everyone when you say a food food waste, everyone goes, yeah, we got to have to our restaurants recycling. You know, let's get our restaurants recycling of food. It feels all great, and let's go back to the straightforward point. You want to deal with food waste? Go vegan. There's no messing. There's no. There's no conversation. Literally, there's no conversation. Look at the data. So the questions are when you start to look at things through a systems level it also changes the nature of how and what the solutions are and what actually our responses. How do you make a city go vegan? You know we've done, we've kind of taken smoking off the table I guarantee you in the next 20 years, not even 20, 10 years you are going to see cities structurally move towards actually decarbonizing their food supply chains and that will be on the table. What will that do? What will be the implications? How would you design that? That is an interesting challenge. And those sort of challenges are increasingly on the table. And that's, I think, the question I want to bring to the table, is increasingly clients aren't just looking for buildings. What they're looking for is solutions to real strategic questions. And those, those sort of design challenges are really fascinating. So in this world, I think, of kind of 21st century problems, I think one of the big problems at the center of it is our 18th century institutions, how we think, HR contract, all the way through to governance of various other aspects. And one of the big challenges we face is how do we innovate in this complex world? How do you support? How do you drive innovation? And I think that's going to be foundational. So one of the things for us, and I'm sorry you won't be able to read this, but um, is if you look at a neighbourhood of uh, in terms of care, you could look at services. You could look at the physical design of the neighbourhood. You could look at how, how allocation happens into that neighbourhood in terms of actually houses are allocated. You could look at technology infrastructure. You could look at business models. You could look at supply chain. You could look at policy and regulation. What we're finding is that to really innovate, you have to go diagonally across this. Innovating here, actually all, all you end up doing is literally rebuilding in slightly different shapes what was already there and that was my personal story right so I the reason why I left traditional architecture um, was because effectively I built a building in West London and I sat down with a client and said and they said why did you choose us and I was like well, we chose you because you, you were giving us a street as opposed to a square we already had a square and I put my head in my hands and thought shit that's the contribution of architecture it was just the fact we were different And actually, what would we really rebuilt? We'd pretty much rebuilt the same building that existed since the 1960s, just with nicer colors. a Little bit more energy efficiency. Had we really transformed the health outcomes of that neighborhood? Like shit. And was that the right way of doing it? Probably, almost certainly not. And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves as designers. And my invitation to you is design exists here. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we ever made as a profession, certainly in the UK, is we linked ourselves to construction. And we thought the epitome of design and architecture was to be more tightly coupled with construction. Because if we could lead the construction development supply chain, we would have some truth in how we built stuff. And actually all it did was marginalise us to producing things or largely envelopes of things or even the envelope of designing the, the idea of the detail that somebody else will detail for us. Right? So what you have is actually the kind of the, the real challenge of design. It's there, and that requires us to think and operate differently. And that, to me, is one of the kind of central, kind uh, of central questions. So, how do we think across a system? I think is a big issue. So we've talked about craft. We've talked about uh, sort of the, the kind of nature of uh, of um, complex systems. Typologies, again, you guys will all know this stuff. Um, we were, I was fortunate enough to be uh, part of the Impact Hub movement. Uh, there's 102 around the world now. I was, uh, worked with Jonathan Robinson uh, putting together the global some of the net- network design right at the beginning. And that was extraordinary. We built multiple Impact Hubs around the world, so co-working spaces for social entrepreneurs. It was extraordinary to see that movement. We've seen that movement grow forward, all fab labs and other things. But I want to talk about this. This is restaurant day. Restaurant day to me is one of the most interesting things that's happening, and it's one of the most interesting typologies. Basically, 40,000 people in Helsinki turn up one day, and anyone can open a restaurant anywhere. So, what does that do to use classes? And I'm telling you, that is the beginning of a really interesting story when we start to kill use classes and that is the beginning of a very interesting story. The whole allocation design of cities through management of use will become much more real-time, and restaurant day is a very (coughs) interesting beginning of disruption. When you can do use class management through IP point of sale, different models of governance around people, I think we start to have a really interesting challenge. So we are seeing this disruptive challenge. We've been part of many of this stuff. And so right now we're doing a piece of, we're about to start a piece of work in Montreal, looking at restaurant day, and how do you actually change use class organization and allocation in completely different ways? And could you take it out of buildings? What does that do to planning? What does it do to architecture? Does architecture then become driven by use? Does, it, does architecture become infrastructure? actually become independent of function fundamentally? What does that start to do of how, how even it's financed and structured? So I think these sort of really interesting disruptive questions are on the table. A colleague of mine, Tim Akersbach in, um, in, um, in Copenhagen, is now looking at this, which is actually to do with how we use data different environments to optimise work, work spaces, so a lot of stuff around curation. So again, what we're what we focusing on is reinventing FM facilities management. So rather than making about management of facilities, it's about the improvement of people's lives and people that work there. And that's really about looking at not just the physical design and curating the architecture continuously, it's also about looking at events and programming in an integrated way. So what happens when at that moment in time the architect is the curator and the continuous curator of that environment, data driven, you focus on social networks and uh, analytics. So what happens in the role of design in that future, I think is really interesting. So suddenly architecture is a service, continuously plugged in, and maybe even contracted on the basis of outcomes. Material outcomes to the business, not necessarily just the idea of rent as a commodified value. What does that do to the disruption of our our practice? So, next thing, open manufacturing, we've been sort of, as part of a lot of our work that we've been doing also in terms of the kind of democratisation narrative, has been looking at how we democratise the means of how we produce and make things. And in 2011, and this kind of pretty much throws up a chart which Alistair Parvin sort of describes really well, again is this journey of the kind of fourth industrial revolution, where you go from kind of the likes of William Morris talking about the power of craft, all the way through to kind of different cycles of uh, industrial concentration to actually the fourth industrial revolution giving us the opportunity to decentralize production and decentralize the means of production in a way that we've never been able to do. Now that is an opportunity but also a threat because it can also just be the centralization of design and the centralization of creativity and the distribution of the risk of production which is really the tyranny of a system. At that moment in time, actually what we do is we concentrate all the kind of control powers at the centre and we farm out all the risk uh, all the way through the system. So, but there's an opportunity here into that conversation of kind of how do we talk about a new industrial um, revolution which is genuinely open, transparent, open source and written ways that we can uh, drive uh, different types of conversation. So one of the things we did was 2010 now, so 10-11, was we did the Wiki House in Gwangju um, uh, Biennale and uh, South Korea, and that was a fifty thousand pound commission, and it certainly spun into a whole project where we were looking at three D routing houses, um, and there are now like I think like forty five different chapters around the world. Uh, in uh, friends uh, in Christchurch in New Zealand have built an earthquake proof Wiki House. And they've been able to have it approved by local planning authorities, which means approved development rights. Again, you could three D route them all the way through. We also built something called OpenDesk, which uh, is open source furniture, taking the same principle. You can three D print it locally. Uh, you can get it printed and delivered to your house a little bit like IKEA. Um, fascinating thing! Oh, don't fascinating thing was when we launched that in two thousand and eleven. We had eight thousand downloads in the first four weeks, literally all over the world. People were printing it making it, sending us pictures, and we were iterating the design around the world. It was a fascinating experience, and this was like, now, years ago. But one of the things we really learned in that was this conversation about, if you do this distribution of print uh, of manufacturing, how do you also actually distribute, uh, change quality control? How do you warranty these products? If you want to sell them to Google, what you have to do is be able to warranty a product. So how do you do warranties in decentralized distributed supply chains? And that was the first time in that in WikiHouse we started to realise that in the ideal of manufacturing there's a whole bunch of questions that sit underneath the story which are all to do with warranties because unless you can distribute and decentralise your your Q&A mechanisms what you end up with is effectively the same old story. The person that does a Q&A controls the parameters of design controls what the truth will be. So, what we need to do is almost design that dark matter, and that's what one of the big inspirations of the conversation that we had. And that sort of really gets me on to the next part of the story, which is actually the stuff that architects don't like to talk about. And one of the things that happened exactly is that when we were doing the Wiki House, the challenge for the Wiki House is not the construction, the challenge is how do you get a mortgage? In order to get a mortgage, you've got to be able to provide insurance around the house. And if you're doing distributed production, you've got to be able to build the warranty infrastructure for the designer, the producer, the assembler, and all of that supply chain which is going to be different every time it prints. So unless you can build a new warranty infrastructure, you cannot get it financialized, which means you can't take a mortgage on that product. So it's really only a house for the rich people. So that really asks the question that if we wanted to design this stuff, there's a whole bunch of design that was behind the scenes that was really significant. I don't know how many of you know the Chicago Million Dollar Blocks projects, right? So, a couple of hands. So, I think this is the sort of stuff that we should be really thinking about. So, Chicago mil- Million Dollar Blocks, I think, is one of the most interesting projects because it basically talks about it costs a million dollars in every one of these urban blocks in terms of actually people reoffending. In the US, it, uh, reoffending costs $144,000 a year. $144,000 a year. It costs 65000 ish to go to Yale. In the UK, it costs £238,000 to put someone in youth offending for a year. It costs thousand pounds to put them in Eton. Right? So what we've got is these kind of extraordinary costs. And that's not to do with just the... It's to do with accounting, but it's also to do with the social contract we are more focused on penalising people than actually focus on rehabilitating them. Now imagine a prison. You're asked to design a prison. Right? Now the traditional notion of a prison is somebody will say, right, we need this many things, this is what we need out of it. Now imagine you ask as opposed to that, you asked, actually we want to reduce re-offending. You are asked to design a re- prison, but your ultimate goal is to, and I think Holland's done very well, if I remember correctly, as you've been closing prisons and actually insourcing patient, uh, people from around uh, outside. But how do you design a prison? It's entirely about rehabilitation. Would you design a prison? Would you design an ashram? How would you design it? Now, those sort of things become increasingly possible when you put a different mat behind it. When the issue is no longer about actually the number of units, but actually the issue is it costs $144,000 to put someone in prison. How do you create a new maths behind the question fundamentally changes what we end up designing. So one of the most extraordinary experiments we've seen in in, in India, for example, an ashram prison which has 97% of of people that come there do not come back to prison. 97%. And it's effectively an ashram because people go there for a month, they're invited to be silent for a month. And it's an extraordinary experience, so what they designed it is a completely human development-oriented experience. Is it cheaper? Yes, for society. Is there a new business model? What does it do to design? And I think this is what my real fundamental thing is. Who are we designing and how can we use those powers of design around these things? So million dollar blocks wasn't just about the identification of capital, it was about the fact that we could change what, what we did with it. So even in Holland, I think it cost about Thirty-eight thousand uh, euros for someone who's homeless on the streets. Thirty-eight thousand euros—it costs you, every taxpayer, for being homeless on the streets. That's because of the cost to A&E or emergency services and other things. So, what's the com- what's the conversation around how we innovate the solution around homelessness? Is not nice, twee little cars or nice little smaller housing units. It's actually just give them a house. It's way cheaper. So there's really interesting, we, we as architects, when we design into the wrong problem, we, we can fetishize the wrong solution, which is kind of cute cars, you know, cute sort of plywood little boxes, because we think that's going to somehow solve the problem. Whereas actually when you get into the hard numbers of it, it changes the solution space. And what happens when you start to contract for outcomes in architecture? So suddenly you're not contracted for actually the number of uh, how much you spend in building a prison, but actually the outcome of the people. How would you design? How would you design? How would you think? Who would be on your team? I think it would be a fundamentally different team. And I think what you would design would be fundamentally different. And the really interesting part of this question is, those contracting models are already out there, and they're being used by government already. Pretty much all over the world. And I'm saying to you, I think those models are coming to architecture. And the question is, are architects actually even in the table of conversation? Or is it just the likes of McKinsey? So how do we as designers become really deeply strategic into this conversation? It's fundamentally on the table. So what I suppose I'm trying to say is that in that dark matter stuff, and I think the property rights thing is going to be extraordinary, by the way. Um, Maybe we can talk about it later but is that these things are fundamentally changing the nature of the city and how we design. And what I'm saying is social impact bonds are already out there. Outcome procurement is already out there. These things are going to change what we design and how we design. And the question is, are architects even in the table to be able to think about that stuff at that strategic, set, strategic uh, design level? And there are people like people like Michael Steinberg in Helsinki Design Lab who put together Helsinki Design Lab, an extraordinary person. So there are some really extraordinary leading lights of this conversation. The question is how do we as a whole profession start to reposition into that story? And they are fundamentally different business models. So we're now seeing, for example, urban renewal has largely been based on, on real estate uplift. So if you want to do some urban renewal, it's usually either the government underwrites it or it's to do with uplift of real estate. What happens if you actually start to talk about the social outcomes? What happens if you look at urban regeneration and say, well, actually, if it does cost somebody who's... So, for example, we know what it costs if, so if a child gets... An, yeah, so here's a good example, right, I'll go into... A, so we did a piece of work in Milton Keynes, which basically looked at energy poverty. Housing Association came to us and said, look, um, uh, we have a series of schemes. A lot of the people sit, uh, living in them have out, uh, energy poverty issues. How could you rehabilitate the housing? I said, right, we'll do it. When we did the housing, They went from living at 13 degrees to 19 degrees centigrade or 21 degrees centigrade, right? We solved that problem. Where was the the money saved? It wasn't saved by the housing. It wasn't even saved by the people living in it because they just spent the money in still using the energy, it was entirely saved by health service because the number of times people were going catching pneumonia and children that were missing school that was where the savings were in the school and the health service. So when you do these investments in physical environments the value is captured in third parties. So how do we start to think about this stuff in fundamentally different ways it means that you can do capital investments now into buildings on the basis of the savings in, on health. So these sort of new business models are actually being increasingly possible, but they allow us to build architecture, which has genuinely got a social outcome at the centre of it. And those sort of outcome-based business models are synthetic. So, for example, an outstanding school in the UK puts £100,000 on the price of a local house. So these are public goods that create effectively privatised value. Uh, how many of you guys own a house here? Surprise venue. OK, good. Right, So, it's just, so... I hope, hope you've all had house price increases right, over the last few years. So here's a little bit of a test. Has your house gone up in value? Yes? So, here's: is it your house that's gone up in value? No. Right. So the reason why that's a really interesting question is the house physically, if I was to take that house and put it in the middle of, I don't know, far-flung Russia, it'd be worth nothing next to nothing. So the physical house an, is not appreciated in value. You say the land. Well, the land probably no. Don't own the land. no one knows. Exactly, so it's government owned, so it's independent. So where is the value that's captured? It's entirely from actually public goods. So if you look at the uplift in value it's because effectively you've got access to labour markets access to schools, access to uh, um, uh, parks, these things have effectively inflated in value. The houses where it's captured. Because actually what we have is a shortage of common goods. Because we know physically the house is a depreciating asset. So it's when people say location, 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 what they mean is access to public goods. And so what's inflating over the last 20, 30 years in the UK It's not private housing, it's common goods that have inflated and they've been captured by private housing. So it opens up a really interesting question when we see value in that way, that actually none of the value capture is ours as individuals, it's actually societal value which we've artificially monetized in individuals. So these sort of questions are on the table, but they'll also allow us to have a different type of social contract, different qu- conversations about public and private value, which I think are going to be really, really important in these things. And there's new business models coming up around some of this stuff, around impact derivatives, a way you can fund and in- give money to a school, but capture it using smart covenants. How many of you know about covenants? Covenants were really lovely instruments which were used by churches. So that if a church organ was broken, it would basically ask money from all the houses nearby to contribute back to rebuilding the organ. These were legal instruments on people's title deeds. So these sort of historic instruments of kind of crowd obligation have existed. And there's some really interesting ways of how we can build new commons business models and value mechanisms to finance the commons that have historically not been possible, because the cost of administrating them has become virtually zero. And the reason why I'm obsessed about this is because that allows us to build whole sets of public goods that you guys have been great at. Holland's been brilliant with this sort of stuff. But many parts of the world have really struggled to build common goods in a way that's actually of the right order and quality. So if we can start to reimagine this stuff, we can start to build the infrastructure for that quality in more parts of the world than what we're typically used to. And this sort of stuff is this sort of all sorts of stuff that we've been doing around um, how you can do, examine some of these things. So, I suppose where I want to talk about this is that I think where we are is, is I think there's a massive conversation about democracy and it per- permeates everywhere and it, I think there's an obligation for us as designers to think much harder and deeper about our role as professionals you are not consultants you are not management consultant hired by your client however much propaganda you're told I tell you as an RIBA trustee right? you are not that is not your responsibility you are there responsible for preserving the public good and a public good is judged by your peers now in that conversation I think we have to end the conversation on I think one of the most challenging and interesting debates that's on the table also, is, I think, what it means to be human is also fundamentally up for question. Over the last three to four hundred years, we have kind of glorified the idea of human as object. Actually, most of our discussion is around object-orientated thinking. And one of the big questions on our table is, actually, there's a whole moral crisis on our table. So UK, four million people, classes living in poverty. But also this, so there's a great talk by Dr. David R. Williams and I recommend every architect with any kind of moral sense of understanding listens to it. And this talk is based, he's a, PhD, he's a professor at Harvard University on public health. What he talks about is how black Americans in, uh, ha- basically live 10 years less than their peers who are equally educated. 10 years less. And this 10 years less is not just kind of Anything. It's to do with basically everyday racism that they face every day, which basically means persistent levels of cortisone in the bloodstream. So when you have persistent levels of cortisone in the bloodstream, actually you're more liable to diabetes, more liable to heart disease, more liable to any of these acute functions. So what we're saying is that we're building society. where effectively people are literally being killed, institutionally killed, ten years in advance of their peers. Now if I was to take you into Star Trek world and lift you all up and if Ben was here I'd name him Captain Kirk, we'd go up and we'd sort of raise up, actually I guarantee you in 50 years time we will look back at that as a class of genocide. And we will also look back at people in poverty who died 20 years ahead of people who are rich and well-off, 20 years is the age differential in parts of the UK, as a a further part of genocide. We are literally killing people off. Now, why I end here is I think think for architects to be civically relevant, to be civic actors, we have to start to stand up for social and spatial justice in a meaningful way. One of the biggest tragedies, I think, for the architectural scene in the UK is actually we don't have a meaningful relationship with citizens at all. They see us as just products of of financial capital and by-products for actually organising financial instruments. And that means we have no legitimacy as actors. And for us to be meaningful, I think we have to meaningfully understand the real injustices on the table and become relevant to people's lives. Because I tell you what, that violence is coming. Those things won't be swept away. And as in the 70s and 80s, where effectively architects were burnt with, burnt with the, kind of, the kind of modernism movement, this generation of architects will also be burnt if we're not being relevant to the society that we're part of. And I, I tell you this because I, I think stuff like the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, these are all absolute clear signatures of actually a deep sense of injustice in people's lives. And I think we as architects have to become responsible and actually agents of change and recognise our responsibility in that process. And I think that we have to recognise it in structural ways, right? So for example, the impacts of poverty, they transmit two generations down the line. Two generations down the line. Your neuroscience is directly affected by your friends, you physically More than 50% of you is all bunch of organisms that have got no human DNA in in you whatsoever. But they are absolutely essential components of you. Your brilliance, the whole illusion of meritocracy, the reality is, it's bullshit. You're here, I'm here, because we are fucking fortunate. Actually, our genius has very little component to it. We are here because actually of great schools, great advantage, great networks, great positioning and actually some, some moment of luck in that moment. How do we start to think about ourselves as genuinely generous to our responsibility? And then I think what we have to talk about is I, I think there's a whole degree of recognising our interdependence. So if we go back to the systems diagram world, I think we increasingly, science is telling us that we ourselves physically, if not in neuroscience terms, we are massively interdependent with the world around us. Now to bring that to crisis, the whole enlightenment movement that's been the center of, kind of the scale of growth was all around the individual and the object. The crisis I bring to the table here is I think we're at the end of that. The notion of the individual and the object is, was a useful illusion for a world where, which was seemingly infinite. As the world has become small and we recognise our interdependencies, whether it's climate change or whether individually we recognise our neuroscience affects each other, we have to start to build a new consciousness. So there was a really brilliant ethnographic experiment which basically took a child born, it was 19, I think 82, where they took a child born in the West and they showed them a painting. And the child born in the West was saying, what do you see? And said, I see the vase. What do you see? I see the vase. What do you see? I see some stuff behind the vase. Okay, Same painting shown, I think think it was Southeast Asia, to a child. What do you see? Context. What do you see? Vase. How people were seeing the world was fundamentally different. They saw context, relationship, not object. Now that seems like a small thing, but then if I was to touch you into sort of worlds of quantum physics. Quantum physics is telling us this already. The science of this is way in advance of our thinking. The science of actually great entanglement behind things basically recognises every object is not an object, but a fragment of the whole. Our language is structured around objects and nouns, because our language is not fit for actually the, the science of our understanding. In a world of massive interdependency, how do we start to operate and behave? I think that's the great reframing that we're in the middle of. And I think the crisis that we face, whether it's Brexit or Trump or the rise of the far right all across Europe, is actually a crisis of actually understanding how we exist in this new relationship of interdependency and our ability to to transcend the problem of sovereignty and my belief that I am sovereign. Whereas how do we build new notions of that? I think those are the fundamental questions that are on the table. And my personal request is, I think it's important designers and thinkers start to really think about this stuff and actually start to design from this point of view because I think the world is asking for it. We have no shortage of conversations or clients that are starting to think like this. I think the problem is more the profession in that story. With that, I'll end. Thank you.
2: So yeah. Also, thanks a lot for the for the inspiring talk. I was very moved by one moment when you mentioned that uh, you seem to give a lot of agency to the people, like you mentioned the artificial intelligence and the relationship with the with the labor. I was wondering if there was any particular observation or any particular uh, like moment that made you understand how important the people that are on the side are, or is it just a general observation?
1: It, it, so. Yeah, it sounds, so where it came from was that there's a reason why we end up talking about Industrial Revolution 4.0. is because you can own the machinery. You can own the things. Actually, it's very difficult to own people. But actually if you look back at history, the real revolutions of any technology are what it means to unlocking people. So humans have an extraordinary ability to be unlocked. And I would argue, the biggest revolution we're about to see is actually the humane revolution, which is actually unlocking the full capacity of what it means to be human. So what does that mean in com- terms of being able to do complex problems, complex in empathy, in care terms, in creativity terms? I think that is the potential of how, democ- how industrial 4.0 it, it can do, what it can unlock, is actually a capacity to be human. And that, I think, is the fundamental question. Or does it become a means of tyranny? And I think that's the kind of, pivot point we're right now in the middle of where does it become a means of ownership by a few and the enslavement of the many in in much of that process. And I think that's a real profound question on the table right now. So I my this is not a this is a design choice, right? Um, like banks for the poor or, or schools, the way we design schools in in the uh, age of industrialization, which is to create people who are good for industry. We, you know, people go into school at eight forty five in the morning, they finish at three fifteen. Totally arbitrary. Actually, it was all to do with the fact that that's what industry needed. People getting up at a certain time and being able to finish at a certain time and being able to program at nine. Why do you guys all turn up at nine o'clock? Well, we know for teenagers, right, it's shit. Going to school at nine o'clock is terrible in terms of the brain. It's about 10 o'clock is much better for them. So these social norms that are being created they're actually part of an industrial model. They're part of a process of how we organize in a, in a labor unit sense, where we see people as units of labor that can functionally do something. The question is, is that the way we can unlock the full value of every human? That to me is really the profound question. And if you look at stuff like Burtseger, uh, which is kind of your, your Dutch uh, care company, uh, neighborhood care company, so it has 10,000 nurses, 14,000 actually, right now, but 10,000 nurses and 50 people in HQ, 50 people in management, 10,000 nurses, 50 people in management or uh, doing the platform. I think that's the big revolution we're going to see is the post managerial city. So that all these beautiful glass towers we're building, they're about to get wiped out. They'll be like industrial buildings of the, of the old because there'll be no one doing administration because that's, that's the illusion. And I think that's one of the big things that we're about to see. As we saw post-industrial cities, we're about to see post-managerial cities. That's what technology is really disintermediating, is the whole cost of administration and management. And that is all about, on one side, unlocking the full capacity of nurses to care and give a shit. And the other side, actually making empowered infrastructures around that. That's a big opportunity.
3: Yeah, I was just reflecting also while you were talking um and what Julia you pointed out that it seems that there's a sort of underlying question of um value and how we have valued or how we have defined value as purely financial in the past and that we need to kind of shift that conversation because even in in the kind of um built form or the public spaces in a competition like you mentioned The value of those public spaces for um, attracting people and having kind of lively activity, it is recognized, but it's always recognized on the basis that the land value is going to increase based on that activity. And I think what your um, kind of thesis and, uh, and presentation demonstrates is that we need to shift that into a much more rich kind of understanding of what value is. And I know, of course, Mariana Mazucato talks a lot about how we need to reframe that conversation and make new language to deal with it. Um, how do we value people's time for caring, um, health, happiness, all of these other things that have previously not been measurable. Um, and how does, how, I mean, how do we start to do that? I guess that's a big, that's a big question.
1: It is, but I suppose the thing I really think what's fascinating for me is that, um, say, for example, uh, everyone talks about public space and animation of public space, right? So anyone can design a square, actually, it's next to useless unless you can actually animate it. Um, All right, so let's talk about animation. Well, um, if we're going to animate a square, how are we going to fund and support the animation of that square? Okay, could you do something around smart rental agreements, which based on, because every restaurant is basically, usually the, the rental value of a restaurant or a location is typically based on the footfall of people that are walking past it. Most retail is based on footfall. So if you were doing animation, you're gonna increase the footfall. Could you have a smart rental agreement which links to, effectively the animation, and so starts to pay for it as a, benef- as a beneficiary cycle. Here the private value and the public value become symbiotic. Now, the really interesting but moral question at the center of that story is, well, that can also start to optimize, well, who do I want coming to that square? Well, actually, I really only want AB1s because they're going to be the ones that are going to really come into those restaurants and I can get the maximum value. So, suddenly, do we start to virtually get ghetto using code, uh, place, and programming? So, like I, you know, you could argue I ghettoed uh, Bristol Urban Beach uh, with Melissa by programming the music in a particular way so that actually kids would come there and families would be there as opposed to other people. So what's the morals of this sort of programmatic coding I think is really gonna be interesting. But that world is coming. And my question on the table is that when you design laterally through the system, I think that's when really new things happen. And I think we as architects have to be designing much more laterally through the system rather than through the domain and I think that's one of, I would argue, one of the big crises of architecture right now. It's kind of meaningless right now. You can look at any magazine, it's whatever. It doesn't mean anything, largely because actually we are no longer really designing through the, through the, through the system. And I, 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 you know, it doesn't really matter. Any, you can go to architecture schools and everything else, the same conversation, it's become non-clear, and not, not even the right questions are being asked. Right? So if you want to ask some really profound questions, ask the question, what will happen to the city if you have universal basic income? Will the city form exist? Do we believe in the urban renaissance agenda? Do we genuinely think it was anything more than coffee culture and real estate booms? Did it actually improve people's lives? Did it actually improve complex, uh, complex problem solving? Did it create us capacity to build actually complex things? Maybe, maybe not. Did it improve transactional efficiency of cities? Probably. I think we're not asking the difficult questions and we're being comfortable around a bunch of illusions. And those illusions are about to be unwound. Marina Matsukato is one, I can list you 10 other people, Carlotta Perez, other people, they're telling you this stuff is coming down. And I can even give you, I would say it's 18 months away maximum, right? And I think the question is, are we as architects are we going to be ones carrying the can of having designed all those buildings? Because the developers won't be anywhere to be seen. The finances will be invisible. And that to me is a really profound question for us as design as as designers of the city, because we will be the one held account, I guarantee you. And unless we if we want to be relevant, design obliquely, obliquely through the chain. And that requires us to build new competencies, new capabilities, exactly as what you're doing with Alice being in part of the team and here, you have to go oblique
3: uh hi I guess one of the concrete examples would be um from your presentation about the beach in the middle of the city um you mentioned about um the process of involving the people in the design process, and with the people um, you mean the citizens uh, who live in that city and who will use that pitch. Can you share uh, with us uh, how the process of involving these people is uh, throughout your design?
1: So so too often, so we're not big into... Um, um, s- so. Too often, participation in design means you kind of, uh, there's two aspects of it. One, you actually have the design already sorted, and you sort of open up some, do some vague consultation with some nice nice models, and you go, hey, isn't this nice options, and there's only really one option? That's bullshit. Do not do that. Second is design design kind of uh, participation, where you say, let's crowdsource this design. That's bullshit too, because actually, you have intelligence and capability. You solve complex problems. So the crowd participation in design mm-hmm. is not about the physical design of things. It is about the participation in the governance. It's the participation in the programming. It's the participation, mass participation in the in, in the supply chains and uh, and the content. So for us it was a hybrid. So we yes, we did invite people to be part of it we created a facilitated structure, but actually we held a vision, but that vision was iterating constantly. So people were saying we can get this, we can do this, and it was highly iterative and agile, and that's what was really interesting about it, not the fact that we were crowdsourcing the design. And I think too often crowdsource, like this participatory processes that we run, are actually deeply frustrating for people, because what they create is the illusion of influence and ownership, well actually there's none, because the ownership is actually by a developer, And we get some token kind of idea of, you know, five people and a dog have said the square is nice, right? Or they said, like, we like pink, whatever. It doesn't matter. That is not meaningful participation in cities. And I think we have to start to become deeper and more responsible for actually the participation in cities. And that is about governance. It's about content. It's about all these are hot invisible structures. How do you govern a public square? That's the real participation Extraordinary examples, I think, Alison, uh, you guys were looking at <coughs> as part of in-between a- economics and the work that you were doing in Copenhagen right this weekend. So y- there are other models of governance and structures that have to be part of, this, part of the story. So for me, I think we have to become much more deeply involved in that and not at the fig leaf of kind of, you know, the kind of big show that architecture tends to put on of kind of going, hey, here's some buildings that we, we did and what do you think? What options? Where should we put this building? It's, we know it's not real, right? Let's be honest. And they also know it's not real. And I think that destroys trust. So I think we have to talk about meaningful participation. And the other thing also bearing in mind, you know, going back to my example of a house, right? The individual house, the real value of a city is not in the individual units. It's in the aggregation of the city. So the individual house, if I put if I got rid of the whole city and just left that individual house there, has virtually no value. The value comes from every part of the city coming together. That is the aggregative value. So nobody has private value, it's part of a commentary sense. So we have to start to talk about shared value in a meaningful sense. We have to talk about shared ownership of the value of a city in a meaningful sense. So even if I don't own the building, actually as a a citizen in the city, I contribute to the value that will be created there and vice versa. So we have to have meaningful discourse around how cities are made and not in the illusion of participation, which I think is very thin.
3: I think just following on from that, I know we've had some quite geeky conversations about out- outcome-based planning, and it's also how do you measure all these more abstract things that I'm really interested in, like do we predicate these future business models on the assumption that everything is kind of sensor-based and c- constantly analysing us, and that's how you could tag something like happiness or health or creativity to an input which is kind of physically abstract from that output? Is, is that the assumption? And if so,
1: that's quite scary. So, yeah. so let's look at, so I think there's two different points here. So one is actually the role of predictive analysis. So one of the big philosophical problems that we've got is a lot of the predictive analysis thinking is so at societal level we used to do predictive analysis and we've been doing it for a long time. What's different about data is we can now do it at virtually the individual level. And at the moment in time, that is really scary. So one of the big questions is that. Second question is the whole the data data the data discourse. I'm I don't think the problem is data. <laughs> right? I think this is where we're all getting confused. The whole, I'm sorry to say this, but the illusion of that we will all control our own data, it's like me saying to you, you control all your own footsteps. Go control them. Like, dude, how are you going to do this? It's absolutely bollocks. The thing that's really important, and this is a structural question, is governance. I think the biggest failure that we've had over the last 20, 25 years is we no longer have functional models of governance, which is about the integrity of how things happen. And I think this is the big crisis that we're facing Of Climate change, all these things are part of the same issue. Um, so the misuse of data as has been allowed, you know, as I would say Facebook has done other things and writing contracts that nobody reads, these are governance failures, right? These are actual governance failures. These aren't cute, these aren't smart, they are failures in governance. And I think we have to start to re and you know, I think reimagining governance for the 21st century for me is a fundamental question to allow for any of these other things to come to the table. And I think one of the big challenges we face in the West right now is if you look at the decline of um, the decline of trust in our institutions, it's just it's just going like this. And it's been going consistently across every domain virtually. So Unless we can actually build the integrity of governance, I think we won't be able to unlock the value of any of that technology because I think the level of kind of distrust that would be so systematic. Whereas if you look at places like Dubai, China, where the autocracy allows it to effectively increase and operate these new business models, I think we will genuinely have a crisis of innovation because we do not have the institutional trust anymore or the power to innovate at that scale. So the, my, my problem is less about innovating at that scale. My problem is more that we don't have the governance and the mechanisms for trust and integrity at that scale. And, and I think that to me is a fundamental crisis uh, that sits there. So you know, if you're being monitored, are you being monitored by your management? Are you going to get fired by your manager because you had two coffees instead of one? Is that what we want? How do you actually have governance around this stuff? What if actually the role of that technology wasn't to actually look at pinpointing your weakness but but actually, uh, um, so for example, insurance. So there's two ways, if I can go down to pricing your risk or my risk individually, right? There's two ways of dealing with it. One is to price me out. Say, Indy, dude, you're never going to drive again because I'm just going to price you out of the market. The other way of doing it is to actually be obliged not to price me out but to actually be supportive of changing my behaviors. So if you put a cap on price, then the only thing insurance companies can do is effectively innovate on adjusting my risk. And that becomes the next focus of innovation. So then the focus isn't about saying, I'm gonna charge Jack 10% less. It's gonna be like, I can't charge Jack or Indy less, but Indy's more of a liability to me. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna focus on behavioral stuff. Hey, indeed, really, please be careful. You're driving after 9 o'clock. You're typically drinking. I don't drink, by the way, so just for the record. Um, whatever. So, so you can then start to use technology in a much more ennobling way as opposed to actually a control-oriented and price-differential and inequality way. That is a design problem for me how we use technology, how we create the ethics for this technology and the infrastructure for it. And that, to me, is an opportunity. But in order to get there, we have to create the infrastructure of governance for people to trust any of this stuff. Until we can't get there, we can't do any of this stuff. And that, I think, so uh, that's the journey I think we're on. I think the technology is coming. That's fine. I think we have to reinvent ourselves and our means of actually having integrity and governance around it.
2: Uh, I would like to go back to the question that was asked before about the agency of the individual I have like a question that is might be a little bit naive or like provocative the question would be uh, should we allow to give uh, the agency to more and more individual and how we should not be afraid of that the individual would lead the certain process in a direction that is not desirable or that the
1: outcome is not positive I hope yeah S- so in my mental model it works like this if we want freedom We have to create the infrastructure for freedom for everyone, first step. And then the real value of freedom is actually you become aware of your interdependency. So the transcendence point of freedom is when you become aware of your interdependency. And too often we talk about freedom as this notion of I am individually free. The really powerful moment of freedom is when you become conscious of your relationship to others. And that I think is what we have to head for: is we have to transcend the kind of notion of individual object-oriented freedom to this kind of conscious interdependence, awareness of interdependence. It has to be awareness of independence. It cannot be imposed. It cannot be driven. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be forced. It cannot be coerced. It has to be enlightened interdependence. And that I think is. And but we have to do that for everyone. That is a we have to t- unleash that capacity. So that's why I'm personally a big fan of experiments like Universal Basic Income, because what they are about for me is creating that infrastructure for freedom for everyone. And then the, the real philosophical questions are, how do you create the institutional infrastructure for building that? And they are historic examples, right? This is not bullshit language. So you go back to stuff like, there's a brilliant book by a friend of mine, Thomas Borkman, um, who is um, uh, in, Sto- in Sweden, And he writes a book called Nordic Secret. And in that book, he talks about schools, which are called Volk schools, uh, I think. And so these schools in the late 19th century in Sweden were built. um, Basically, if you were ages of 25 to 30, you could effectively take a six to nine month sabbatical. And you would go there, and you would become self-authoring. The purpose there was, and it was 10% of the population went and you could go there and become self-authoring, you would sit there and you could write, and this is anyone, right? This is tradesmen and everyone else. And they they would be exposed to new technology, they would be exposed to philosophers, and their purpose in that 69 months would be to write and think about their life. Now, the reason why it was done was because at that time, actually, the Swedish government and the leaders were worried about the rise of authoritarian governments. And the only way, and there was a whole bunch of um, German philosophers who were writing at the time, that the only way to deal with this was to actually make people who were self-authoring able to author into their own worlds. And one of the tools that they sought was actually how do you give people the capacity to build these. And these folk schools were built throughout Sweden, and they, spanned, they span all the way over uh, to, uh, obviously, Denmark, and for, uh, sort of all the way over to the Nordics. And even now, those schools exist, Four hundred million a year in Sweden is spent on these schools, but now they're just technical colleges, they're polytechnics. But their original use was actually about self-authoring, and and so I think there are instruments of actually institutional as well as financial that actually create different relationships of being self-authoring in charge of your life and being able to do that. So, what are these institutions and how we imagine them for the twenty-first century? I think that to me is a really lovely project, and those are the sort of projects I think we should be part of. Thanks a lot.
0: that's all from Indy. To hear more from Indy ask him a question about his talk, you can find him on Twitter at Indy Johar. Join us for our summer symposium with the theme of ownership, which will be live streamed on Facebook and Instagram on June 15th at 2 pm Central European Time. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your private podcast provider. A special thanks to Boy4 Indyboard for recording this lecture. Until next time!